Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be examining the great unlocking, Boris Johnson's decision to relax the two-meter social distancing rule and reopen swathes of the UK's economy. Plus, we'll be digging into the comings and goings in the Labour Party and the top of Whitehall, why the Labour leader Keir Starmer sacked Rebecca Long-Bailey from his top team, and why Mark Sedwell is expected to soon be out as head of the civil service. I'm delighted to be joined by our columnist Robert Shrimsley, health editor Sarah Neville, political editor George Parker, and chief political correspondent Jim Picard. Thank you all for joining. If you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. July the 4th has been called Super Saturday or Britain's Independence Day. To most people, it's simply the day that much of the UK's closed economy starts up again. The Prime Minister announced this week that pubs, restaurants, cinemas, museums and art galleries will all reopen come next weekend. And business will be a little more back to normal thanks to the Prime Minister's decision to relax the two metre social distancing rule. So Robert Shrimsley, let's look at the grand reopening. It really felt as if this was the moment the politics and the economics of coronavirus overtook the science, particularly on social distancing. Why do you think Mr. Johnson decided to open up the economy quicker than I think a lot of people expected? Yeah, I think you summed it up very well, Seb. I think that it is about the politics and the economics as much as it is about the science. Although, of course, one can't exactly ignore the science because if the virus starts to flare up again badly, then the economics doesn't work either. But fundamentally, because Britain was late heading into the lockdown, it's also been later coming out of it. And also because of the partial easing that happened a few weeks ago, the number of new infections has remained stubbornly high. Although it's falling, it's still in the thousands every day. And that has made them very wary. But the problem is that the economics of the situation are getting worse and worse. And Boris Johnson has been persuaded by people like his Chancellor Rishi Sunak that if he does not open up the economy sufficiently in time for the summer, the hospitality industry will be in catastrophe. You will have millions more unemployed and Britain will be in deep, deep financial trouble. And he's been under enormous pressure from his own party for quite a long time to do this. You know, you can see the argument that the economy needs to get motoring and he had hoped that by delaying a little longer, he would be able to get those numbers down, but they haven't come down as fast as he'd like. And so he's taking a risk. There's politics to this too, which is that fundamentally, as long as we are talking about this as a health crisis, the government is very much on the back foot. It's at the mercy of events. The headline each day is how many new cases, how many new deaths and so on. The opening of the economy allows the government to tell a different story, allows also to suggest that the virus has been conquered, that the government strategy has seen us through and that we're moving forward. And the whole focus on July the 4th and Independence Day, you can imagine the images of the Prime Minister and everyone else at the pub and that sending a message to Britain that we're back in business. And although this virus hasn't gone away, as long as we're careful, the government's stewardship has steered us through, which is an absolutely fine strategy as long as we don't get to the point where actually the cases stop shooting up 
up again quite dramatically. And in fact, the government's stewardship looks very questionable. So this is undoubtedly the biggest risk of his premiership and it's high risk and high reward. And I think one thing you saw, Robert, the idea they want to move on is the fact that the daily Downing Street press conferences ended this week, which was the government's attempt to simply say, we're not talking about coronavirus all the time. It's business back to normal. And we know Boris Johnson's going to give a big speech next week, which is going to be entitled Build, 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 about how to rebuild the economy, level up all the things he promised in last year's general election. But it does seem odd because the economic catastrophe is the thing that's really just beginning here. You know, the furloughing schemes and the business bounce back loans, all those things are going to start tapering off pretty quickly. And when they do, that's when the unemployment numbers might shoot up and when the really politically painful stuff begins for the government. The truth is everyone was focusing on the press conference. It suggested a country still in crisis mode. The whole point is they want people to start talking about what we might call normal normal activity and normal life again. And of course, the longer they delay in doing that, the argument would run, the worse things get for the economy. If the political reaction to the reopening was pretty positive, it was somewhat different, Sarah Neville, from the scientific and medical community who have very different concerns and intentions to people like the Chancellor Rishi Sunak and Conservative MPs. Yes, the gulf between the politicians and the scientists has certainly been growing ever wider in the last few weeks. And Chris Whitty, the government's chief medical advisor, was very clear this week about the enormous risks of an uptick, as he put it, if people throw all caution to the wind, as they were doing rather alarmingly at Bournemouth yesterday, the resort on the south coast of England, which saw half a million people descend. I mean, the scenes on the beaches were quite extraordinary. And If you see it from the point of view of the scientists and the NHS, what that looks like is hundreds of infections incubating as people lay on their sun lounges. And the question for this, Sarah, is if this does really spiral out of control again, which is the fear of people like Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallant, who are at the final Downing Street press conference with Boris Johnson this week, they gave very tempered endorsements of this. But the message from the prime minister was, if we do see another coronavirus outbreak, then we're much better prepared to have localised lockdowns. The idea being that you could just lock down a particular area, a city or a town. Are we actually ready to do that? Because so much of that depends on the test, track and trace scheme, which has not been entirely successful so far. It hasn't. It's reaching about three quarters of those who test positive. But it's rather extraordinary, given that people have to leave contact details when they have a test. But there is still about one in four people who are not being contacted by the tracers. And even more worryingly, there's probably three times as many people with the infection than have actually been tested And that's why increasingly you've seen people like Matt Hancock, the health secretary, putting across this message as strongly as possible. We want people to go and get tested. But I think your point about dealing with local outbreaks is really important. And when I talk to people on the ground in the local authority, public health departments, they're still incredibly worried that they are not getting the information that they need from the centre. There is still a disconnect between the national test and trace programme and the local public health experts. Now, this is meant to be addressed by the end of the month. That's what we've been told, that the local authorities have been asked to draw up plans which are going to slot much more readily into the national programme. 
But certainly right now, I don't think many people on the ground have confidence that they would necessarily know about a localised outbreak quickly enough to contain it. Robert, I think what a lot of this comes down to is what you wrote about in your FT column this week between this question of competence and when the Johnson government is eventually judged on this at the ballot box, it might not be about who was on the right side of a cultural divide about statues, but about how they handled this crisis. Is it judged that they did what was right, they did what was necessary? I feel like in some respects, the government will be given a bit of a free pass on the first wave of coronavirus because everybody was unprepared, from Emmanuel Macron to Donald Trump. But if it comes back for a second time and we're not ready and we see high levels of excessive deaths and more incompetence, voters really won't be as forgiving. Yeah, it's possible to give the government too much of a free pass on the first wave because there were clear errors and complacency at the very, very start of the outbreak when the Prime Minister simply wasn't prepared to focus on this and they were brassing it away as just another bird flu and it's not going to be that problematic. So I think whenever we have an inquiry of some kind, we're going to find that the government really did drop the ball at the very start of this crisis, above and beyond what one might call acceptable levels of errors that anybody would make. The issue of competence, though, goes to the very, very heart of this, and that's the big concern for the government, because it hasn't been a fantastically competent response. Even when they started to get in gear, they've always seemed to be running behind the virus. So if they are seen to have messed up the end of lockdown, and that's another black mark against their competence. And then they've got to manage an economic crisis. There was a very interesting article that William Haig wrote a week or two weeks ago, where he talked about how the lockdown simply could not be reinstated. Whatever the medical arguments, it had been too painful, it had done a job, but now it couldn't be reinstated. And I think having to reinstate the lockdown will be treated as a proof of government failure. And so they are going to have to find ways in which they can stamp on outbreaks which are short of a lockdown if they want to maintain any reputation for competence. And the point I was making on culture wars is that a big part of the Conservative appeal, particularly some of the voters they won from Labour for the first time in the last two elections, was that they shared the values of these voters and that they are more in tune with them on cultural matters, social policy and stuff like that. And that is an important and useful electoral weapon for them. But it's not big enough to counter a sense that this government isn't any good and doesn't know what it's doing and can't manage. And therefore, competence is absolutely going to be the key. And especially as we see how we're doing compared to other countries. Now, Sarah, I just want to go into some of the details of what's going to change on July the 4th, because a lot of it's been expected for a long time that pubs and restaurants can reopen again, and but they have to be COVID safe, as the government describes it, which means they've got protections to make sure the virus does not spread in these places. But we also heard that art galleries and cinemas can reopen too. And it feels like the most important thing of this is the relaxation of the social distancing rule. That two metre rule has been in since March. It was something that the government's scientific and medical advisors absolutely wanted, but they had this review conducted at the heart of Downing Street that came back and said it's now been reduced to one metre with mitigations. Is that going to be effective? And to put it quite bluntly, if we've all gone to the pub and had two or three pints, are people going to take any notice of it? Just in the last week, I've seen in my own neighbourhood here in South London, the enormous difference in people's behaviour. Now, this is even before this famous July the 4th Independence Day. I've seen my neighbours starting to gather together, to have noisy parties. I just have a feeling that to many, possibly most Britons, social distancing is largely over. I absolutely agree that once one gets into the convivial surroundings of a pub, 
is it really likely that people are going to keep in mind the need for the two metre rule? I think that many people will see the government now as having sanctioned the abandonment of that rule. It remains to be seen whether the mitigations that the likes of galleries and pubs put in place, how much of a job they can do of enforcing some of that, perhaps through perspex screens and the like. But I think this is clearly a volatile and unpredictable situation now. And it's certainly one that greatly worries people in the NHS. A doctor just this week said to me that the date that they're all worrying about is July the 20th, because given the way this disease progresses, the 16 days between July the 4th and the 20th is the period it will take for people to become sufficiently ill to be hospitalized. So they are all braced. They very much hope it won't happen, but they are braced for the possibility of a big influx of patients on or around July the 20th. Now, Robert, the whole thing still got this slight surreal nature to it, because as we were just saying, you know, all the hospitality parts of the UK economy are reopening, hotels and private accommodations will be open for people to stay in again. And Boris Johnson tacked on cinemas, theatres and art galleries to try and help our cultural senses. But one area where the government really still is struggling and still doesn't have a plan is schools. They were meant to be broadly reopened by now. And the prime minister said earlier in the lockdown that all pupils would have some faith time before the summer break. That's not going to happen. And the focus is all now on September. And there's many people in Whitehall who think that, in fact, by September, all schools still won't be open again. So we might help parts of the UK economy. But until you can get all those kids back to school, that's going to have a real dampening effect on how productive a lot of families can be. I think that's absolutely right. The feel-good factor of stepping back into your local will diminish quite quickly if your kids still can't go to school and if you're still thinking about that. And we've also seen enough surveys to know that the kids who are suffering most are the ones who are already the most disadvantaged in educational terms. So I think it's a really big issue for the Conservatives. Now, it may be that given where we are in the calendar that people have almost written off this term and that they'll live with it and they'll worry about things again in September. But the government is really going to have to have schools back to normal by September. And as yet, we haven't quite seen the signs that we would like to see that suggest that will happen. And on top of which, exactly the point that Sarah was making, if we're beginning to see this significant upsurge in cases by then, that's also going to be a problem for the government in getting schools back to normal. And this goes to your earlier point about competence and it goes to the point about risk, which is that essentially the government has taken the decision that we need to take the risk in order to save the economy. This is the fundamental calculation, both economic and political. But if come September, come October, things really don't feel back to normal, it feels like they're slipping, then people are really, really going to notice and schools is a single obvious place where people are going to be aware if the government has delivered for them or not. Rebecca Long-Bailey was the carrier of Jeremy Corbyn's flame within the Labour Party. She came a disappointing second in the leadership contest earlier this year, but was put into the shadow cabinet to keep the left of the party happy. That came to a rather abrupt end on Thursday when she tweeted an article that allegedly contained an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory and Sir Keir sacked her. But she's not the only prominent figure in Westminster to face questions about their future. As the FT reported this week, the head of the civil service, Sir Mark Sedwell's future, is also in the balance. Jim Picard, let's begin with Miss Long Bailey. Why do you think Sir Keir Starmer acted so swiftly and brutally to sack her over just one article? 
I think it's very easy in a world where the Conservatives have an 80-seat majority to dismiss any kind of internal disputes within the Labour Party as a sideshow. But actually, this is a major political moment. It's, dare I say it, a sort of minor historic moment. If you think of Tony Blair and his Clause 4 moment, you know, people still talk about that a quarter of a century later, where he you know, stood against the left and his party sort of faced them down. And what we've got here is Keir Starmer in a brave or foolhardy or, or excellent way, depending on your political perspective, he is facing down the hard left in a way that none of us really expects him to do only a couple of months ago. Now, Rebecca Long-Bailey, a lot of our listeners will have seen her on TV or heard her on the radio. I don't think anyone would ever confuse her as being a, a political heavyweight. She only entered politics in 2015 and she was sort of very much promoted as a protege of the Corbyn, John McDonnell team and encouraged to be the potential successor. But it, it's the totemic thing here that she was the last standard bearer for the hard left in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet. Remember back in the early hours of his leadership, he sacked nearly a dozen Corbyn allies and just had a total clear out of the top echelons of the party. She was the only one really left, unless you count Andy MacDonald, who arguably is sort of a Corbynista. But you know, she was the last hardcore Corbyn supporter left. And so to remove her is risky in, in internal political in terms of, of annoying the grassroots. And it sends out a big message, I think, to the rest of the country. One of the things George Parker I think is fascinating about this move is when Keir Starmer came in, he said his model for the Labour leadership was Howard Wilson, who took over the party in the 60s with that message of unity to try and bring the warring Labour left and Labour right factions together. And as we know, went on to win two general elections for the party from that. Unity has been really, or he said, since he became leader, he's not made any policies. He's not taken any big decisive stands in terms of moving himself away from Jeremy Corbyn's project or towards anything else in particular. But people will look at this and say, in some ways, he's only interested in unity for the centre and the centre-left of the party, not people on the more left wing of it. I think that's true. And going back to Jim's initial points about Tony Blair and the Clause 4 moment, I mean, Tony Blair effectively defined himself against his own party, didn't he? He took on the left and that appealed to the swing voters that Labour needed to win over, that they thought that if Tony Blair was able to stand up to the left of his party, he'd be able to make tough decisions in government. And that was a reassuring signal. Now, bearing in mind that Keir Starmer's audience for everything he does and his laser-like focus is on the next election, is how do you win over people who previously voted Conservative at the last election, maybe the last couple of elections, and back into the Labour column? Now, on the face of it, this seems like a divisive move because, as Jim was saying, he's been effectively purging the Corbynite left from top positions in the party ever since he became leader in quite a brutal fashion. And, of course, there are Labour MPs who are very disgruntled about the way that Rebecca Long Bailey's been treated. They thought he overreacted. But at the same time, this is all part, I think, of Keir Starmer's grand plan. And will it lead to a divided party? Well, I think it's absolutely certainly true that divided parties don't win an election. So it is a potentially dangerous move. But in my experience, the Labour Party will rally behind the leader, whatever he or she does, provided it looks like they're about to lead the party back to the promised land of government. And as long as Keir Starmer looks like he's winning, I suspect we'll hear relatively little from the Corbynite left. One of the things that really surprised me, Jim, about this news was it showed how powerless the Corbynistas have become. Because if you think about it, this time last year, they were riding high. Jeremy Corbyn was still in his pompous Labour leader, totally unchallenged. And I think it shows how Keir Starmer has moved so quickly, very brutally. And this is really the first blood to be spilled within the party here. But of course, this raises the question, is there more to come on this? 
I think one of the reasons that Keir Starmer acted as swiftly as he did was that there'd been a couple of other incidents where Rebecca Long-Bailey had been inactive in the presence of anti-Semitism. And so they saw a slight pattern of behaviour. I think the truth of the matter as well is that if Keir Starmer rated her abilities as a politician and someone who was going to go out and take the fights to Tories in an impressive way, then her survival chances might have been better. And one thing about Starmer when he was putting his shadow cabinet together, one of the elements was he, he picked a lot of people who hadn't been part of the whole internecine warfare of the last five years. But he also picked people that he just thought were high calibre. And I don't think he ever thought she was that brilliant. But I think what you're saying, Seb, is, is totally true that the speed with which the tide has gone out on the Corbyn project is astonishing. It's really interesting to watch. And it was the same way when Jeremy Corbyn won in 2015, which was that a lot of people on the right of the party, they kind of thought, well, he's only got the leadership. We've still got all these sinecures and positions on National Policy Forum or the National Executive Committee or the PLP or in local government. But the amount of power that stems from the leadership, it was proven by Jeremy Corbyn that if you're the leader, you can pick people onto the NEC. You promote people to the shadow cabinet. The power stems from the centre. And just as we saw that with Jeremy Corbyn, we're now seeing it with Keir Starmer. And a lot of people are very unhappy about what happened yesterday. Their protest is going to fall on stony ground. But people defending her are basically saying that criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic. That is the sort of defence that they are putting out there. And briefly, Jim, how much of this was actually about the article versus the topic of schools policy? Because, again, Keir Starmer's had to tread this delicate line between the teaching unions who don't want schools open until it's fully safe and that their members can be protected and the views of parents, as we were talking about earlier in the podcast. There's been this sense that Keir Starmer wants to get schools back sooner, whereas Rebecca Long-Bailey hasn't. So is there any notion going around that, in fact, they were divided on policy and this was a helpful way of solving that problem as well? It's an intriguing theory. I think in reality, Keir Starmer was happy enough with where they were on education policy. There was a feeling in Lotto, Keir Starmer's office, that Rebecca Long-Bailey was taking the side of the teaching unions and not showing much flexibility. But actually, if you go back a few weeks, that wasn't a bad position for Labour to be in, siding with cautious parents and teachers. I just think that public mood has shifted quite fast towards people feeling, actually, we really need to get schools opening as fast as possible, obviously within safe parameters. And I think both Rebecca Long-Bailey and Keir Starmer might have got a bit caught out with that change in public sentiment. So what happened here was, there was an interview with the actress Maxine Peake in The Independent. She suggested that the US police had learnt their violent tactics from Israeli secret services, this being completely unfounded. And Long Bailey tweeted about what a diamond Maxine Peake was and, and implying support for the article. She subsequently said she didn't agree with all aspects of the article, and I think the crucial thing that happened is that Keir Starmer said, look, you've got to take down this retweet and you've got to take down some subsequent clarification. And she dug in for hours and hours and she basically said she would only take down the tweet if she could issue a lengthy press release. And the leader said no. And it's quite interesting to look at Twitter and her original retweet is still there. So she did, to some extent, bring this upon herself, I think. 
Now, George, let's move on to another figure in Westminster whose future is in question, and that is Mark Sedwell. He's the cabinet secretary, the most senior civil servant in the country, and someone who's hugely powerful and influential within Downing Street. And we've been reporting for some months now that tensions between Sir Mark and Boris Johnson's team, notably Dominic Cummings, his infamous and very powerful chief advisor, have been deteriorating. But it all seems to have sped up a lot this week, and we did a big piece in the FT talking about how there was rumours among the most senior levels of the civil service that Sir Mark had threatened to quit this week. But in fact, the general feeling is he'll be gone by the end of the year. How significant would it be about Mark Sedwell going? And what does it sort of tell us about the state of Johnson's Downing Street? Well, Mark Sedwell is a very powerful figure at the heart of government. Not only is he cabinet secretary, so he's a principal advisor to the prime minister on the official side. He runs the civil service as cabinet secretary, and he's also the national security advisor. So he's providing a sort of a channel of official advice into the prime minister, which is unparalleled, really, in its scope. And I think what we've seen, really, is the start of the blame game in number 10 about the COVID-19 crisis. At the start of this crisis, rightly or wrongly, wrongly in many people's eyes, Boris Johnson left it very much to officials to prepare a response to the pandemic as it spread from China into Europe. Matt Hancock, of course, the health secretary, was involved as well. Boris Johnson didn't get involved personally really until the beginning of March, so three weeks before the lockdown. And the fact that Britain wasn't prepared properly for the pandemic, whether it was on testing equipment or protective equipment for medical staff, I think was blamed by people in the number 10 circle on the civil service and then particularly on Mark Sedwell. You mentioned Dominic Cummings there, Sedwell, a very powerful person, the figure of government. They, when the blame is apportioned, you can guarantee the one person who won't be taking very much of the blame will be the prime minister. It goes a bit broader than that as well, of course, because Dominic Cummings has always said he wants to shake up the civil service. He told special advisers this week that he felt that the machine, the centre, had underperformed during the crisis and it needed to be rebuilt. He talked about a hard rain coming. And if you put all of those things together, it's a pretty uncomfortable position for Mark Sedwell, who was appointed by Theresa May and allowed to keep those two titles of National Security Advisor and Cabinet Secretary. I think a lot of people thought that he might go fairly soon after Boris Johnson arrived in number 10. He formed originally quite a strong partnership with Dominic Cummings, but as the months have gone on, the divisions have surfaced. And the other day, Boris Johnson decided to bring in a 41-year-old civil servant called Simon Case as a permanent secretary in number 10. So basically taking on some of Mark Sedwell's responsibilities. And really, I think at that point, the writing was on the wall. Indeed, because when Mr Case was brought in, he was working for the Duke of Cambridge as his private secretary. Some people were saying, oh, this is a canny move by Mark Sedwell to shore up his position and protect him from all these accusations from Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson. They'd fallen out. But our reporting this week has suggested the opposite, in fact. And this was a clear decision by Boris Johnson to, quote, clip the wings in the words of one senior civil servant of Sir Mark. And I think at that point, you do have to raise the question just how long he can last. And I think the prime minister's personal support for Mr. Case was proven the fact that it was him, not Mark Sedwell, who was asked to review the two metre social distancing rule. And as we said earlier, that rule has now been relaxed. But how hard is it to sack a cabinet secretary, George, because the civil service is politically independent from the political side of the British state and someone like Sir Mark you know, has worked it for a lot of his life and has risen up through it. Does the promise have the power just to say to someone, right, that's it, I've lost confidence, you're out? I think essentially, yes. I mean, what the Prime Minister wants goes at the top of the hierarchy in number 10 in the civil service. There's propriety and things have to be done in the right way and I would imagine that Mark Sebrell's departure will be phased over a number of months and 
there's a sign that there's going to be a big upheaval at the top of the civil service in the autumn. We already know that they're looking for a new person to run the combined Foreign Office and Department of International Development. There's rumours around that that will be a surprise appointment. In other words, not the usual cast of diplomats or permanent secretaries who'd normally expect to be in the frame for that kind of job. There is a process to be followed. And if Boris Johnson was seen to be acting in an arbitrary and brutal way against someone at the top of the civil service, that would send a terrible signal to other people working very long hours in a difficult situation for the government throughout this whole crisis. So I think it's got to be managed carefully. But nevertheless, it seems to me that the point of no return has been reached or is about to be reached. Jim, just to dive into Boris Johnson's inner circle for a moment, because Dominic Cummings, the report was feeling quite chastised following the whole affair about Barnard Castle when he broke the lockdown to make this trip across the country and went for a wander by a river. There was a general sense in Westminster that this was unforgivable and he would go. As we know, he didn't go. But what we found out this week is that, in fact, Mr Cummings remains still very influential at the heart of government. And this civil service reform agenda, which he's written thousands of words about over the years, is in fact going to be pushed forward even harder and faster due to coronavirus, which is why Sir Mark's position is in question there. So I think the idea of Dominic Cummings feeling chastised by anyone or anything is is quite unlikely. This is someone who clearly always thinks that he is the smartest guy in the room. And I think there were always valid questions about whether it was appropriate to have a cabinet secretary also doubling as the national security advisor. But what we're really looking at here is classic blame game. Remember that the final decisions are always taken by ministers, not by civil servants. And when things go well, ministers take all the credit. When has Mark Settle ever been given credit for anything that has been a success in the government? And I think there's something slightly unwholesome about them sort of trying to identify full guys while we're still in the middle of this deadly pandemic, not least because civil servants are not allowed to talk publicly about things, at least not in that way. And it also points towards the fact that they're worried about what is likely to be quite a heavy inquiry coming down the tracks. We don't know that it's definitely coming, but it's been alluded to and it's very, very likely. And if you think that they're fighting like rats in a sack now, I think it might get only worse. And finally, George, I just want to quickly bring in the other story of someone else who's in trouble this week, and that's Robert Jenrick, the housing secretary, that he's found himself some hot water over a housing developer in East London called the West Ferry Print Works, which has been overseen by the media proprietor Richard Desmond. And he's managed to get himself into this whole row about whether he was unduly influenced by Mr. Desmond in overruling planning officials, both locally in the local council for this development and in his own department department to put this thing forward after he sat next to Mr. Desmond at a very fancy Tory dinner at the Savoy Hotel and watched a video about that. Again, in normal times, it would feel as if Mr. Jenick would be in real trouble here because lots of the paperwork that was released this week, details of text messages and emails, suggested that the Secretary of State really pushed this thing forward. But it feels as if Downing Street and Dominic Cummings are holding firm with Mr. Jenick. Do you reckon he's going to hang on? Probably the simple answer to that is yes, unless the Sunday newspapers have a raft of new allegations against Mr Jenrick and proof that he's done something provably wrong. Anyone looking at this would regard the whole affair as being whiffy, to say the least, although Mr Jenrick says he's done nothing wrong at all. But what we do know about the way Number 10 operates is it will stand by its own people. We saw that, obviously, to a massive extent in the way that Boris Johnson stood behind Dominic Cummings, and now they're sticking behind Robert Jenrick. And it's important to remember the backstory to Robert Jenrick. He's I think the youngest member of the cabinet, born in 1982. He was one of the three centrist 
Tory rising stars who backed Boris Johnson early on in his leadership campaign, alongside Rishi Sunak and Oliver Dowden. They penned an article for the Times Red Box, and all three of them were propelled into Boris Johnson's cabinet into quite senior positions. And so they've decided to circle the wagons around Robert Jenrick. So I think that Number 10 will regard this as a media bubble story, motivated partly by the fact that lots of the newspapers writing about this saga hate Richard Desmond, the former proprietor of the Daily Express, with a vengeance. And therefore, in the end, they'll lose interest and the caravan will move on. But it's no doubt it's damaged Robert Jenrick. One interesting corollary of that, I think, is that one of the planning reforms Mr Jenrick and Number 10 were planning to try and speed up housing and other developments would have given more power to the Secretary of State to intervene in planning decisions and, in fact, to streamline planning decisions, take local authorities out of the equation. I think this whole affair has made that a lot more difficult politically to sell in the current climate. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much as ever to Robert, Sarah, George and Jim for joining us. But until next time, if you're wondering what to read during these hot summer days, then you should check out the FT's annual summer book series. Our writers and critics choose their favourites from 2020 so far across politics, economics, science, history, art, tech, food and wellness. You can find out more about that at ft.com forward slash summer books 2020. And we have a special announcement. Next week, we'll be relaunching the Politics Podcast. Thanks for all your wonderful feedback you've sent over the past couple of months. From next Saturday, we'll be back as Payne's Politics with a new format and some new special episodes. Join us then to find out more. This episode of FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Dillamere. As always, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.